Well, as I teach today, I want to let you know right up front that this is not a political message, but it is a beliefs message. And uh, I know that it's at election time, and uh, I felt led to teach on this, and had this date picked, and then uh, people knew what I was speaking on, and they said, move it forward, move it forward. And I said, no, I felt like this is the day God said it should be on, and so I'm doing it this weekend. And uh, I'm so glad that we left the hold nothing back uh, series that we did with life groups. I'm glad that we had that where it is, and I'm just trusting that this is in the right place at the right time. And uh, I'm going to be using something that Pastor Tim Keller did. He talked about five things, five things that as believers, we are for these things. As believers, we are for these things, and these should weigh on us when we vote, when we live, when we just go about our lives. And um, I want to let you know that four years ago, right before the election, I preached a, a, a series, if you remember that, called Nada, None of the Above. I almost recycled it again, saying, again, none of the above. We, we would like new choices, but we did that four years ago. So the five things that we're going to talk about today, five things that Tim Keller came up with this list, but as believers, number one, we are for the poor. Number two, we are for ethnic diversity. Number three, we are for the nonviolent free exercise of religion. All right. Number four, we are pro-life. And number five, we are for living counter to the sexual culture that society is living right now, all right? Somebody just got really interested in this sermon. All right. Now, historically, just to let you know, uh, pastors used to preach sermons before the election. They used to do that. Historically, they used to preach sermons before the election, talk about what was coming on in the world and what they should be aware of. In 1954, the Johnson Amendment said, uh, put restrictions on that and said pastors could not uh, speak against candidates by name. They could speak out on policy, but they could speak out against candidates. And then in 2017, there was an executive order uh, that was saying we will not prosecute people that are speaking out on things that are, we won't prosecute. But just to let you know, this is a biblical thing. This is not a political thing. This is a thing to say, uh, we are going to preach about the beliefs. And just to let you know, I don't believe that Christianity fits very well in a two-party system. I'm just going to tell you, I don't think it fits very well. In two, I wish we had like six parties that we could believe in. I wish we had like six different parties that we could pick from, and they had to build coalitions. I've been to kingdoms where there is a king that you have to follow, and it seems like living out your faith, following like a, a, a king, you don't get to object. How many of you don't get to object to the king, you know? The king just declares that you live there. I have been to communist countries where there are dictators, and the dictator says, this is exactly what you should do. And it might be easier. You don't, you don't fight within the church at all about politics when you're under a dictator. But you also have to suffer more under a dictator. All right, so I just want you to know that we're going to look this. And, and if you're trying to guess, well, what is Pastor Rob? Where does he stand? What is he? Okay, when I went to vote for the very first time, I went in and they said, are you a Democrat or a Republican or an independent? And I was like, I am an independent. Now, I didn't know that was a political party, okay? Me and Jesse Ventura, okay? You know, and so I registered, I said, I'm an independent. And my point was, you can't like put me into a category, all right? I have beliefs. I'm, I'm gonna vote for the things that I see. You can't put me into a category. And so I said, I'm an independent. So I get all the things from the independence party, you know, but I just... You get the point, all right? And I've never changed it since then, all right? Now, I'm going to be talking about 
positions that we hold and, and policies that people are voting on. And, um, and I want to let you know very clearly, I don't believe that religion has become political. I believe politics has become religious. Okay? Everything I'm talking about today is in our book, and it's really something that people are voting on even now. It's in our book. It's like, you're not going to hear me talk about tax rates today. You're not going to hear me talk about treaties. You're not going to hear me talk about different, you know, uh, uh, rules and regulations, okay? You're going to hear me talk about things that are in our book. So it, it really, politics has become religious. And I will be clear, I understand that there's a lot about character and character does matter. And I believe that all of our leaders are flawed and their character flaws are there and they're visible. There is no perfect person. How many know we all have our own list of things that we have? It doesn't excuse it away. And as a leader, I've got to speak out when I see things that are not right in our leaders and say, that's not good behavior. That's not good behavior. And I want to be clear that um, even though our leaders have character flaws, we have a choice to emulate them or not. We can mimic them or emulate them or not. We can say that's not the way we live with those character flaws. But the policies that are before us have huge that you cannot object. If the law is changed that boys and girls have to use the same dressing room, it doesn't, like that's a law or a policy that we be put out there, okay, versus a character that we say, I'm not going to live like that. So I just want you to know where I'm coming from with this, that we want to look at the policies. And remember, politics got religious. We preach there is salvation only in the name of Jesus. If you ever hear me say, join a political party to find salvation, or that's God's party, you know, that, that's not what you're going to hear. You're going to hear that we are for Jesus and for the kingdom of God, and that's what we're for, all right? So let me go through this. Yeah, some of you like that. All right. Number one, I'm going to jump right in. Tim Keller came up with this, this. As believers, we are for the poor. By deed and by parable, Jesus taught that the person in need is our neighbor. That's what he said. The Bible is full of scriptures that God is for the poor. Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Matthew 25 talks about sheep and goats, and it says what you did to the least of these, to the imprisoned, to the marginalized, like you did it unto me. There's something about taking care of the people that are poor, that are hurting. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. I mean, there are scriptures all over there that are saying we've got to be for the poor. We've got to take care of this. We've got to do this. And there are scriptures on how to give benevolence and to remember the poor, to take care of the poor. There are scriptures on Old Testament examples of like when you're bringing in your harvest, don't take in everything. Leave a little bit for the poor. Make sure that the poor have some. Make sure that you don't just think it's all about you. Come on, be generous. Leave a little bit there. It's interesting. There was something about gleaning that said, you know what? Leave a little bit there for them to come and get. That people that were able-bodied that didn't have it should be engaged in the process because there's something that is uh, degrading and not unnatural about just waiting for something to be given to you. And then it creates victimhood where you're like, I'm not to blame for this. And when you live a victimhood life and you're waiting for the handout, then all of a sudden, you know what happens? Other things start to fall off your life. You start saying, well, I'm not going to live this way. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. Not my fault. 
And so God in his benevolence was like, here's what I want you to do. Leave a little bit, have them engaged. Those that can't take care of themselves, always bring it to them. But those that can should be involved in this. And he's saying there's, there's an equal opportunity. There's this opportunity for you to be taken care of. There may not be equal outcome, but there's going to be equal opportunity for people to be taken care of. Now, in his book, Who Really Cares by Arthur Brooks, um, he did similar studies and he just kept studying over and over again. And he said, I can't believe it that the people that really care are the people that are religious. He's like, it, it blows my mind. Religious people care more than, than non-religious people. And he said, sometimes up to a thousand percent more. It blew his mind because he thought, surely everybody's the same in taking care of the poor and being benevolent and generous. And he found out that religious people are way more benevolent, way more kind to the poor than people that don't hold religious beliefs. And that was exciting to me that he said, he, did, he used one example. He said, people in San Francisco and South Dakota, and I mean, he picked it, all right? It was in his book. And he said, he said, all right, people in San Francisco and South Dakota, all right, not that very religious, religious. And he said, he said, they give the same amount of charity into the poor. And yet wages in San Francisco are at least 10 times more, but they give the exact same dollar amount, not prorated, same dollar amount. And so he said, people that are religious, they are the ones that are taking care of it. Proverbs 19, 17 says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Christians, I mean, based on what we see in the Bible, Christians should presume a God-mandated duty to be first in line to take care of the poor. We really should. And, and when our heart and our hands and our money are working together, you know what happens? Our soul enlarges. When you're involved in it, when your heart and your hands and your wallet are all together and you're there with people and you're being benevolent, your soul enlarges. And Christians, as believers, we are for the poor. Now, secondly, as believers, we are for ethnic diversity. The church is the first group, the Christianity was the first religion that was multi-ethnic, that invited everyone to come to the cross and to know Jesus. It invited everyone to come there. Matter of fact, on the day that the church was birthed, we find that in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit is poured out. If you know your Bible, the Bible tells us on the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place and they were waiting. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. They are baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. They go out and there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all these different people. And in verse seven, it says this, Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Asia, and it goes on and on. It says both Jews and converts and Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? This meant the church of Jesus Christ was going into all the world. It was open up to everybody. And there was no longer division. God was like, every ethnic group gets to come and worship Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. Early on in the church, one of the disciples, Peter, he's kind of like, ah, I just want to hang around the Jewish people. I don't want to be with the outsiders. And the apostle Paul rebukes him like, no, no, you know you're supposed to go out there. Come on, don't put up a wall where God has no wall. And in the ancient world, there were all sorts of barriers. And we see this. You don't realize this, but we are part of a multi-ethnic religion that God welcomes everybody and says there's no place for ethnic animosity, oppression, racism 
He's like, none of that. Matter of fact, I abhor the term racism for what it stands for, but also it's a social construct. We are all part of the human race and Jesus died for the human race. There's no substandard. We're all humans and racism was used to say they're not even human. I abhor that, okay? And so God is saying, I died for the human race, for all people of all ethnicities, whether it doesn't matter the amount of melanin in their body, doesn't matter the facial features. I died for the human race. And racism, by the way, is, is, was used terribly in our country's history, and it should be repented of. If anybody is racist, it's a sin. It should be repented of. And there's no place as a follower of Jesus Christ for any of that. Now, Colossians, Colossians says this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is all, in all. So in their world, they were saying, Paul was writing, he was saying, you know what? There's Jewish people, they're very arrogant about their Jewish heritage. There's Greek people, they're very arrogant about their Greek heritage. And he's like, you know what? Stop the arrogance, we're all one in Christ. And he lists some people, barbarians. And these were people, they said, you know, like, you, you don't know Greek, so you're like, bar, 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 bar. And they kind of make fun of them, the barbarians. And he's like, who even wants to reach them? And Paul's like, no, God wants to reach the barbarians. Do you realize that Christianity is the first religion that started to learn other languages? People were so arrogant of their language, they didn't even want to learn other languages. But Christianity said, you know what? We've got the message of Jesus to bring to the world. We're going to learn your language. We're going to bring the Bible to your language. We're going to bring the good news to your language. Do you understand? We went on mission to be multi-ethnic. And it says, Scythians or Scythians, it says they, they were like lower than the barbarians. They were lower. So you have like the Jews and the Greeks, and then you have the barbarians, and then you have the Scythians. I mean, they were like lower than the, they were like wild animals in people's minds. They're like, why would you even try to reach out to them? And Paul's like, they're in the family. They're in the family. There's no room for any, you know, racism or any ethnic animosity towards people. Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. I mean, there was a dividing wall of us and them, good and bad, educated, uneducated, barbarians, not barbarians. And right here, Paul saying, you know what? The walls are down. We're all one in Christ. That's all you need right now to know. There's no racism in the body of Christ. It needs to be repented of. The church is multi-ethnic. We welcome everybody to the foot of the cross. You are a brother. You are a sister. We are in this together. And, and it's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful uh, what Jesus Christ has done in bringing us together. Uh, uh, Clint Reddy pointed this out to me. He's on our team. Um, he, he said, think about how Revelation ends. And I've never seen it before. And he pointed it out to me, like I, I've read it, but I've never seen it in this way. Revelation 7 verses 9 through 10. It says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could, would count, could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Think about that. John's writing Revelation. 
He could have just said there are a whole bunch of people and they all look the same. But he didn't. He said every tribe, nation, people, tongue. And he's letting us know, guess what? Heaven is filled with perfect diversity. Heaven is filled with diversity. And it ends with diversity. It's a beautiful scene. So we are multi-ethnic, all right? And we welcome everyone into the family of God. You are a brother. You are a sister. We are family. Number three, as believers, we are nonviolent, desiring the free exercise of religion. All right? Has violence been used by Christianity historically? Yes, sadly. Is it condoned by Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form? Not at all. Not at all. Matter of fact, we have different stories. I'll just point out one. In Luke chapter 9, um, Jesus has been disrespected and his disciples are upset that people have disrespected him. And it says this in verse 54. When the, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, this disrespect, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. I mean, it's pretty short there, but I would love to see that. Like, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire? They just disrespect him. We are going to advance your king. You want us to call? I could just see Jesus like, oh. Okay, no, you guys, you're just... I rebuke you. You know, like, you, you're all, oh. And he's probably thinking, God, how are they ever going to do it? You know, like, these guys. I mean, I want to see, when I go to heaven, I want to see the hologram, like, of this and be like, how mad was Jesus? Just, I want to see that look that just, like, you all disgust me. I mean, I just want to see that one, you know. But they, no violence. When he was arrested, he, he said no violence. He had no violence. I mean, I won't read it, but in Matthew chapter 26, you know, they're saying, like, all right, uh, they're going to arrest Jesus, and they try to cut one of the guy's ears off, and they do. Jesus puts the ear back on, like, don't do that. He's like, no, no, we're not going to fight. We're not going to fight. And he goes, don't you know, guys, like, I got angels. My father would send, like, a legion of angels. Like, you think a sword is powerful? God could send whatever he wants for me, and I'm not calling for that. We are not violent. Some people say, well, he flipped the tables, you know. Okay, let me explain that. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer. He flipped the tables in his house. They were at the temple, and he said, my house will be a place of worship, and you're making it difficult for people to come into my house and to worship God the Father, and God's not happy with you guys. You are making it difficult for people to do this. The closest thing I can give you of what Jesus was doing in that moment, and this is a short illustration, but it'd be like a coach at halftime so angry at his team, he goes over to the Gatorade and he smashes it over and he picks up a towel and he chases his team out on the field and says, get out there, play better. I mean, that's like Jesus was so mad. He flipped, so it was his house, his furniture. He was upset at what they were doing to keep people from God. He didn't beat people up. He didn't light the city on fire. We are non-violent. We just want to worship Jesus and we are not for violence. The reason for founding our country um, was really for the free exercise of religion. Rhode Island was actually founded as a state to have religious tolerance. They were like, we're going to have religious tolerance. Rhode Island, we're, let's we're make a new state. We're going to be very tolerant. And the free exercise clause says this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Means there's no official religion in America. It means you cannot be forced to have a religion or not have a religion. And it means the free exercise means that our faith is not quarantined. 
If you notice, there's a subtle thing being said now. You're free to worship. You're free to worship. You're free. It's not the same as the free exercise of religion. The free exercise of religion says, I get to exercise my religion in the marketplace. I get to exercise my religion in the school. I get to exercise my religion in the neighborhood. I get to exercise my religion when I pray over my Jimmy Johns and you can't stop me. I get to pray. You see what I'm saying? I Free exercise. I get to be active in the exercise of my religion. Okay, that's what it means. That's what it means. Now, I know you're saying like this, it sounds like it might get political and it might, you, I just am gonna tell you one thing right now. One of the parties that we're voting for has said they're going to dismantle RIFRA and they're going to weaken this right now. And RIFRA is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. In 1993, it was a defensive move against the encroachment upon the freedom of religion, the free exercise. Crazy as it may seem, Chuck Schumer actually authored this, okay? Seriously. Bill Clinton signed it. And right now, one of the parties is saying, we are going to cut away at RIFRA, eliminate those protections, and they're going to do things like this, that if you believe that you are a doctor and you don't want to perform an abortion, they're going to say, it doesn't matter. If you don't do it, if you don't do what we say, you do not have the free exercise of religion with conscience. If you are a college and you say, we will not let students live in co-ed dorms, we will not let people live in immorality, it doesn't matter. If RIFRA gets appealed, this will happen, and we will lose the right for colleges. They will take away the Pell Grants. They will take away the ability. You will not qualify for any grants. I'm just letting you know they're saying that this will apply to public and private practice. It means the church can no longer say, I know you're applying to be a pastor here, but you don't believe what we believe and you're actually living together outside of marriage, which we don't do. We would no longer have that right, according to this, if this gets repealed. This is a problem. This is a problem that we should be prepared to look at to realize, you know what? There's something very serious going on here. All right? I'm prepared to worship and exercise my religion. And as you remember, I talked about we might be heading to a Daniel 6 moment. We might be heading to a Daniel 6 moment where the laws will be changed to, for our freedom of religion. But I'm prepared to say, this is what I believe. Come what may, I will exercise my religion. Yes. Now, right? Now, yes. now. Number four, number four, as believers, we are pro-life from conception to natural death. We are unashamed to say that we are pro-life. Okay, the Bible is very clear. It's a baby in the womb. The Bible uses the same word for baby as it does child. Pre-born, born, same word. Genesis 25, it says the same word. It's it used for children. It says the babies jostled each other. And the same word for baby is child. Each other, other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Hosea 12, 3 says this, and it's talking about Jacob. It says, in the womb, he grasped his brother's heel as a man struggled with God. And it's ascribing human ability and accountability for the things he did in the womb, grabbing his brother's heel and trying to trick his brother. All right. Jeremiah 1, 5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Luke 141, get this, Luke 141. The, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, so we have the story of Elizabeth and Mary. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. 
Mary is pregnant with Jesus. And it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The first person to recognize who Jesus was on planet Earth was a pre-born baby in the womb, John the Baptist. Imagine that, a pre-born baby, like, there he is, there's Jesus, whoop. I mean, I'm just having this thought, like, you know, I remember when our boys were in the womb and Becca was like, feel him kicking around. Could you imagine a Holy Spirit kick? Woo, all right, you know, anyways, you know. But we make no apology for being pro-life. We are pro-life. And as a kid, I was brought to uh, abortion protests, all right? Um, some generation growing up right now, the, those that are in their 20s and 30s, you don't realize abortion wasn't always legal in our country. And so my mom, who is the activist of our family, if you're ever wondering where all that fire and activism comes from, blame Isabel, all right? I mean, she's the one, like, when the school district was on, you know, protest and they weren't going to solve and we're going to have to redo the school year over, she busted right into the union negotiating thing. And she goes, you guys and you guys are coming up with a deal today because we're not redoing this school year. Am I clear? And they came out that night on the news. The uh, union and the school board agree, right, Isabel? You know, he's like, so, all right. She brought us there protesting with signs. There were people that got arrested and chained and, and hauled away to jail and those that wouldn't. And of course, we were in the non-arrested group only because we were children. But trust me, my mom wanted to be arrested, okay? So, I mean, but this is very personal. I was there, so I deeply hold this belief, okay? Biblically, personally, also experientially. Like, my mom, before she was married, was pregnant and said, I, I, I'm not in love with this man. And so I'm going to give this baby up for adoption. And she gave my sister up for adoption. I think we have a picture of her on the screen. It's amazing to think there's my sister and I. Um, that was pre-beard with me. But it's amazing. We both have the same chin dimple. I mean, I didn't even know I had a sister till I turned 18. And she came looking for her birth mom. And then I found out that my mom had given her up for adoption. She said, we will be pro-life. And she gave that baby up for adoption. We led my sister to faith in Christ. She married a guy in our church. She's part of our family. It's just amazing to see what God has done. Now, I realize this, one-third, one-third of women in America will get an abortion. And I'm not saying this to make people feel condemned. I'm making people to understand that the women and the men involved in this, men are involved in this too. Yeah. We even have pastors on staff, some of them that have confessed to me that while they were in high school, they got a girl pregnant and had her, you know, they weren't pastors then, they weren't saved, and they, but they forced her to have an abortion. They say it grieves them deeply. So they're both part of this process. But they've asked for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And anyone that has done this can ask for forgiveness. I'm not trying to make people feel bad. I'm trying to make people understand that things that we do can be forgiven by Jesus Christ and we can be made new and God can wash away the pain and the guilt and we can be on mission for this. So this is very real. This is very real. I, I I'll fly through this because we still have one more, but abortion is spiritual warfare. If you're ever wondering why it's so volatile, it's spiritual warfare. And here's what I'll say. In the Bible, when man falls, God says to the serpent, to the devil, he says, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And you will strike his heel, but he will crush you. And God declared war on the devil and said, I will solve the sin problem by sending the seed, by sending the one. Okay, that's why it's so important when you read Genesis, the first volley after that is the devil goes and takes a life, Cain and Abel, and he makes the first attack against mankind. 
And then you see over and over again, Herod tries to kill the babies. You see Pharaoh tries to kill the babies. You see the narrative looks like it's game over because Abraham, Sarah can't have a baby. She's past the seed-bearing time. And so there's panic. Like God's plan is that the seed, and there's no seed. And then God does a miracle with the seed. And anytime you see a genealogy and you kind of go, and you do your devotions really fast over that list of names, you know what that's saying? The seed, the seed, the seed, the seed, the seed. And it leads us all the way to Jesus who wins the battle over the devil. It was all part of the plan of redemption. So there's something spiritual here. There's something spiritual here. And I thank God for the breakthrough that we could see that's a baby. And we believe that it's a baby from conception until birth and through till natural death. And I think we have a beautiful picture of a baby in a womb. This was a, a picture, of, picture of the decade. This picture was done in 1965. Think about that. Picture of the decade when we had a glimpse. It's a baby. It's a baby. And there's a spiritual battle that's going on here. And I want to let you know, some people say, well, I wish Christians cared as much about babies after they're born. We do. We do. Can I just tell you, we have foster parent initiative. We have adoptions. We are running uh, uh, orphanages all around the world. The other day, I was at a gotcha day. If you don't know, a gotcha day is when the, the child legally becomes part of the family. I was at the gotcha day for Oscar Rose as his parents, Ernie and Katie, were just weeping as they brought him into their family. It's a beautiful thing. We're not just for the preborn. We're for all people on earth. And we're trying to bring benevolence and care and clean water and do everything thing we can. For, this is, for me, this is a deeply held conviction. It is. And I've gone across party lines. You say, you're an independent. That's right. My very first vote was for Rudy Perpich in the state of Minnesota to be governor because he was pro-life. Arnie Carlson was Republican and he was not pro-life. I went for Rudy with, and he didn't win, but I went for Rudy. I said, I am always going to vote pro-life. It's not my only thing that I do. I have two co Number three and number four, I'm for free worship of Jesus, free exercise of religion and pro-life. They're like my, those are my top right there. And I've never voted for anyone that hasn't been pro-life. I just haven't done it, okay? Because I, I so deeply hold this. And number five, as believers, we live counter-sexual culture in purity. The early church, imagine this, the Apostle Paul is tasked with spreading the Word of God and bringing the message of Jesus to a world that doesn't even know what chastity means. Chastity means being faithful in your marriage, not having sex outside your marriage, before or outside, okay? And so it's unknown to the Greeks. The Apostle Paul is going to start the church, and he's got to go out there, and he's bringing the message of Jesus Christ. He's the living God. And by the way, now that you're serving him, here's what he wants you to do. He wants you to live in chastity. And they're like, what? The Greeks said, we have our wife for our children that will carry our name. We have our mistress for our ongoing sexual needs, and we have prostitutes when things are going crazy. That's the way they live. So the Apostle Paul's got to go and tell them, guess what? God wants you to live pure, counter-sexual culture. And it's crazy to me that the Apostle Paul started with that message then, and now, 2,000 years later, we found all sorts of wiggle room for all sorts of sexual deviancy and all sexual, like, we're going to just go, 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 and broaden it. No, don't worry about that. That's fine, too. And now we've got all sorts of things where we have sex outside of marriage, divorce for any reason. We have gender confusion. We have all these things going on. No, 
No, the church has always lived counter to the sexual culture and said, we are for purity. We are for purity. Uh, And you say, well, oh, how can we do this? Jesus gives you the strength to live this out. Jesus gives us, you say, well, how can we do that? Jesus does it. Think about in Acts 15, the church is tasked with, again, what are the biggies? What are the biggies? What have we got to tell the people outside? Like, what do they got to learn? One of those things was to be sexually pure. One of the biggies that they said, we got to make sure that you do that. Paul had so many writings. 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it says, It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He's like, don't blur the lines. Put it to death. Kill it. Take care of this. Only Jesus gives us the strength to do this. And we are just deviating from this. California just recently gave permission now for a consent for a 10-year gap that someone could be 25 years old and have a gap to a 15-year-old, 23-year-old to a 13-year-old. Do you understand? We are deviating from this. This is real. Christianity doesn't live that way. Christianity says we will be pure. This is what the Word of God says here. It says, so that you may become blameless and pure, Philippians 2.15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. He's saying when we live in purity, we will shine like stars. Amen. Now there's lots covered, lots covered that I talked about. We got to stand together and not attack each other. We want to promote the things that are on this list. This is the way we live. I thank God for Tim Keller putting this out and helping us to understand it. The first two are easy. The first two are easy. Society is going to like, okay, we're good. We are for the poor and we are, yep, multi-ethnic, no racism. We're good. We're good. We're good. The last three are very hard. Free exercise of religion, pro-life, and then also living counter-sexual culture. It doesn't matter that they're hard. We have to live these things out. Now I'm praying for our church that we'll stay together. We'll protect the unity. Please don't feed the frenzy this week by fighting with people and try to solve things on social media, and try to, you know, it's, I'm just telling you, you could say, this is what I'm for, this is what I'm for, this is what I'm for, but I'm just going to tell you it's going to get volatile. I want us to pray on election day. Pray on election day. I think we have an obligation to vote. I really do. I've already voted. I think we have an obligation. We've been invited into this. We don't serve a king or a dictator. We have an obligation to go out and vote. And I want to be very clear at the end of this, there's no elephant or donkey on my chest. There's a cross. There's a cross. There's a cross. I didn't say this is what Democrats are for, this is what are Republicans, and you say, well, they grab this, they grab Remember, politics became religious. The big things going on right now are not about nuclear arms. It's not about the treaty with Russia. It's not about, again, you know, unemployment benefit. It's not about that. Politics has moved into the religious realm. And so let's be praying more. And, and, and I'm ready to go either way. Like, it does, people say, well, you know, what's your preference? Oh, I got a preference. You know, I've seen, you know, but if we're going into a Daniel 6 moment, I'm ready to stand up for God no matter what, and I pray you are too. Let's, let's wear the cross on our chest. Let's wear the cross. So, Lord, I just pray right now that you'd help us to wear the cross on our chest. We will not run after a donkey or an elephant. We'll take 
the ability that we have to be involved in this very seriously. And we'll speak out. We'll be the salt and the light that you've called us to be. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that in the days ahead, as we try to figure out who's elected for all the different positions, Lord, we just pray that we'd be focused on the cross, focused on the cross. You will get us through no matter what comes our way. And God, let your will be done. But let your church shine bright like stars in a dark world showing the light to Jesus because ultimately it doesn't matter if people had a donkey or an elephant. It matters if they had the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ applied to their life. And so we pray that we preach that message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.